Hello and welcome. I'm Dr. Adam Dorsey, a psychologist in Silicon Valley, and I am the host of Super Psyched, a podcast dedicated to supercharging your life. Each episode contains fun, high-quality interviews with experts looking at psychology from all angles. Super Psyched is your tool to get more of what you want in your life and less of what you don't. Among the activities all 7 billion of us on the planet have in common is our need to eat. Food allows us to survive, thrive, and for the fortunate, it can bring on immense pleasure. However, how things taste and what we like is unique to us all. But despite our uniqueness, there are certain trends. For example, we order tomato juice on airplanes at a far greater frequency than we do on land. Why is that? And have you ever noticed you can have an entirely different experience of taste depending on how a food or drink is presented, where they're consumed, the type of music that's playing in the background, and even based upon the color of the plate it's served on. These will all be addressed on this episode. Dr. Rachel Herz is a neuroscientist, a professor at Brown University, and a world-leading expert on the psychological science of smell. She is the author of several books, including one on smell called Scent of Desire. Another book of hers is called That's Disgusting, and it takes a scientific look at repulsion. Her most recent book explores the science behind our relationship with food, and it is called Why You Eat What You Eat. I loved this book and couldn't stop smiling as I devoured the audio version. And I am not alone. It was listed among the best food books of 2018 by the Smithsonian and the New Yorker and has been praised high and low by the press and thought leaders. So join Rachel and me as we explore a journey of the senses and why you eat what you eat. Dr. Rachel Hers, who has asked me to call her Rachel, welcome to Super Psyched. Thank you so much, Adam. It's great to be here. I'm just beyond delighted. I was telling you off air how much I loved reading Why You Eat What You Eat. I was listening to it on Audible and I couldn't take the smile off my face the entire time. It had everything I care about. It was so heavily researched, so info-packed, so relevant, and it was funny. And it was presented in a manner that anyone could understand. Well, you are the best. Can you walk around behind me? <laughs> this, this makes my day. And hopefully your listeners will, will like that comment too. So thank you so much. Oh, I'm so glad. I'm so glad you got into this field of smell and olfaction. And we'll get into that a little bit more. I actually came across your work when I was actually reading Stan Tatkin's book and he cited your work in That's Disgusting. That's one of her other books. So one of the things that delighted me was that our sense of taste can be influenced by the context in which we are tasting the thing. Everything from the music that we are listening to, the sounds we are surrounded by, the weather, the color of the plate, the size of the glass that we are consuming our beverage from, all of these things have a massive impact on our experience of the taste of a thing. And I was wondering if you could speak to that. So really what the book is about is really, I want to illuminate people to all the sensory, physical, psychological, social, environmental factors that actually influence our perception of what we're eating and drinking that we usually have absolutely no idea about. And then hopefully armed with this information, people can then go, oh my goodness, maybe I'm drinking this beer so fast because of the shape of the glass. Maybe that'll make me slow down a little bit. Or maybe if I don't want to eat that sweet treat, I should have it on a red plate and then I will eat less of it. So what we see when we eat influences our perception of what we're consuming. And some really interesting research done with the color red demonstrated that red actually acts psychologically like a stop cue, mainly because it attracts our attention. So when we see the color red in nature, red tends to mean things like danger or blood or inflammation in built environments. It's a stop sign for real. It's pay attention, so forth. So when things are red, we, our attention is drawn to it. So when we have food on a red plate, we're less likely to eat mindlessly. 
and more likely to eat a little bit more mindfully without even really being aware of it or really trying at all. Because the color of the plate is drawing our attention to the fact that there are 10 cookies on it. And that rather than just, you know, stuffing them in our mouth, if it were a white plate or even a blue plate, we'd be much less focused on what it is we're consuming, even if we're not doing anything else in particular. But because it's red, that draws our attention each time we pick up a cookie. And then that'll make you think, well, maybe I don't want another cookie. Maybe I don't have to have another cookie. So the color red in and of itself helps bring us down to the moment when it comes to food and actually also works as kind of an alerting, sort of a little bit of a psychological stop sign and potentially can help us curb and rein in our desire for eat when we're not particularly hungry. So what I'm talking about now is really the case when you're not in a physiological state of hunger, where you really need to eat, where your body is actually in a state of deprivation. This is in a condition where most of us live most of the time, where we're not really starving, but we want to eat some kind of a food. And we're usually fighting with ourselves about why we shouldn't eat that food. And here are some tricks and some tips you can use to try to sort of bring yourself back to the moment and try to rein yourself in. So number one is use a rent plate. Number two actually has to do with the size of the plate. So if you put food, most people have probably heard this, that, you know, small plates are better than big plates if you want to eat less. Well, it's not just because of the fact that you can't stuff as much food onto a small plate, which is true. There's just size limitation. And if it's not going to be slipping over the edge, that a small plate doesn't allow you to put as much food on it. But the other thing is actually more psychological. And that is when we see a full plate, we feel more satisfied and satiated and kind of happy about the amount that we're consuming than when we see a plate that only has what we perceive to be a smaller amount of food on it. So if I put the identical amount of food on a large plate as on a small plate, on the large plate, it's going to look like not that much. And even though I have consumed the exact amount from a smaller plate, because that plate will have looked full, I will feel more full. I will feel more satiated. I will feel more satisfied with that meal and not want to eat more because I think I missed out on something. So one of the things that happens in today's restaurant worlds, well, when we were going to restaurants, <laughs> we're going back to restaurants, is sort of like the giant plates filled with tons of food and customers really like that. Oh, look how much food I got. That's like something that people like in going to restaurants. Well, also people tend to consume extreme amounts of calories when they go to restaurants, especially when that food is on a big plate. But a way to satisfy the customer without necessarily giving them as many calories is to actually just reduce the size of the plate. And in fact, if you look at the trends in plate size from like the 1950s to now, what was at one point the family serving plate where all the food was brought out is basically the size of a dinner plate in a restaurant. For a single person rather than for an entire family. Exactly. People talk about portion size as being important and I'm really underscoring how important it is, but not just because of the fact that this is how much food is there and that's all you can eat. But psychologically, when you manipulate that portion size to look larger, you can then feel more satisfied and satiated and happy with what you consumed and not feel like you've gone without and you need to eat more later. Because a lot of how much we eat has to do with how much we think we've eaten and less about how full we actually feel physiologically. You know, you pull back on the curtain and shrouds so many unconscious processes of our brain when it comes to eating, such as eating in front of a TV means we will eat more. Eating with a large group of people means we will eat more. Actually, imagining that what we're eating has more calories than it actually does will prompt our metabolism to kick into a higher gear and that drinking in a loud bar will cause us to drink more. All of these things blew my mind. And one of the things that blew my mind almost more than anything else was when you scratch an itch that I've always wondered about, why do I order tomato juice on an airplane and I never drink it? on land and you actually <laughs> answered that question. So can you explain why we drink tomato juice on an airplane? Yeah, so this is fascinating research. I was really delighted when I found this study as well. This is not work that was done in my lab. This is work that was done in Robin Dando's lab that he's at Cornell University. And this research was actually predicated on something that Lufthansa, the airline, noticed while they were inventorying how much people were eating and drinking various things on board. And they noticed that people were ordering as much tomato juice as they were beer. And the beer is free as well. So it's not like 
no, oh, well, I have to balance out the budget here. And that's why I'm not ordering as many beers. It's actually just as cheap. In fact, it costs nothing to order a beer as it does to uh, order tomato juice. So what they did notice is that actually the airline cabin pressure, in fact, reduces. And this is something that is also the case, you know, when it comes to eating and drinking on a plate, is that the cabin pressure actually causes nasal congestion. What was found by Lufthansa is that the airline cabin pressure actually causes some nasal congestion. And this is what's true when you're flying. And the nasal congestion actually has a bit of a limiting effect on the flavor perception of things. So you get less flavor from your food when you're in flight because the cabin pressure causes you to be somewhat congested. That airflow between your mouth and your nose isn't as good as it normally would be. And therefore you're getting fewer, you know, of the aromatic molecules. There's less kind of airflow sort of circulating everything. So the flavor of your chicken, cheese, bacon sandwich, whatever, is less sort of intense and satisfying than it is on the ground. And so they thought, well, maybe because tomato juice is sort of a really sort of flavorful drink, that's why, you know, and it has a really intense flavoring beer. You know, it isn't quite as flavorful. It has the carbonation, but it doesn't end up like the bitterness or whatever, but it doesn't have as much flavor. Maybe people are trying to get more flavor from their drinks. And so they're getting like the intensity of the tomato juice is still, you can still get something. So anyway, then Robin Dando looked at how does hearing the noise that is in a plane, because on top of the fact that there's pressure changes compared to being on dry land, there's also this background noise that's about 85 decibels that's constantly in the background when you're on a plane. And depending upon where you're sitting in a plane, it can even be louder than that. And that's basically like standing 20 feet away from a jackhammer. So this is a loud noise that's constantly happening around you. And so what he wanted to see was what the impact of this like constant level of sort of white loud noise might have on our perception of taste, specifically taste. So salt, sour, sweet, bitter, umami. So what he did is he measured taste perception for the basic taste under these conditions of really loud noise or the sounds of silence. So people in the lab were wearing headphones and either having 80, 85 decibels, you know, constant sound in their ears or listening to had headphones on where nothing was playing. So just like pure silence. And what he looked at was how people evaluated the intensity of the taste of the salty and sweet and umami. But in any case, this is where it's interesting because what he found actually was that at high concentrations of umami, in the loud noise in particular, the perception of umami went way higher. So the loud noise actually potentiated the perception of the taste of umami rather than decreasing it. As you might think like, oh, there's so much loud noise, I can't even concentrate on what I'm tasting. And it did actually dampen the perception of some of the other basic tastes. But for umami, it boosted it. And especially when umami levels were high. Well, it turns out that tomatoes are super high in umami. And so the fact that tomatoes have so much umami in them as a basic component, that it's basically the amino acid glutamate. So whenever you have that, so that's in bread, actually it's in cheese, it's in wine, it's in beer, but not as much as it is in tomatoes. It's also in bacon and basically cured meats and so forth. So in any case, the reason why we drink tomato juice on airplanes is because of the umami profile of tomatoes and the fact that the loud noise of being in an airplane makes that flavor so much more intense and therefore more pleasing, especially when everything else around us is kind of being damped down. So that's why we order tomato juice on our plate. And that's incredible. It accentuates the umami. And just if you could break down umami a little further, because it is a newer flavor relative to the English lexicon. Can you describe what is umami? So just to give a little background on the concept of a basic taste is that it doesn't taste like anything else. So it's something we perceive in our mouth. It's a chemical that dissolves in the saliva in our mouth. So as opposed to something that we inhale that flows through the air like a scent, it doesn't taste like anything else. Then it's related to macronutrients in the environment that is necessary for our survival or to be avoiding for our survival. And that there's a specific sort of neural physiological interaction between the chemical that is in our mouth and the brain sensing it as something. So the reason why 
I do not include umami in the lexicon of basic taste line, just stick to what I call the fat form, salt, sour, sweet, and bitter, is because umami tastes a lot like salt. So if you were to be giving someone a taste test of like, tell me what this is, a lot of the times when you give them umami, they say that it's salt. But it fits with the rest of the characteristics for the most part of what it is that it's signaling. Because there are specific receptor interactions that are different from the other basic tastes. The only other thing that's also potentially problematic about umami is it does not necessarily signal something that's necessary for us to consume. So if I go through the basic taste of sweet, it's a signal for carbohydrate. We need carbohydrates. So even though a potato is not necessarily sweet, it's a carbohydrate and things like chocolate and sugar and so forth, those are carbohydrates. They just happen to taste sweet as well. But we need carbohydrates because it's the easiest form of usable energy that we have. So we need calories. And this is, again, basically how we evolved in terms of our food landscape. We need to be able to eat to survive to the next day. We need the energy to be able to forage for food and protect ourselves and so forth. So we need fast, easy calories and carbohydrates give that to us. So we taste something sweet, eat that because that's going to help keep us alive. So we are programmed already, and people lament this in our current agriculture of abundance, and especially from the grocery store and fast food and everything else perspective. Nevertheless, from the point of view of sort of evolution and how we evolved to perceive things, we needed sweet, and some sweet is innately good. So sweet, yum, turns on the reward centers of the brain, turns on drive and desire, so we are built to want sweet. Sour is a signal for acids. And sour also tells us when things are ripe or not ripe and is related to fruits. And we do want acids to a certain extent. We don't want extreme acids. So if something is super sour, that wouldn't be good. But a little bit of acid is actually beneficial for our health. Saltiness is also really important. We need salt. We need to consume salt to stay alive. And salt is also connected to protein. Bitter is really important because bitter is something that we dislike innately. And that's because bitter is a signal for bases, so opposite to acids, bases. And that tends to be a signal for something that's poisonous in nature. So that red berry that you shouldn't swallow, if you bite into it, it's going to be super bitter. And that means it's poisonous. The exceptions are the leafy bitter greens that are actually good for us, but we are just like we're innately built to Yum, sweet. We are innately built to avoid bitter because better to err on the side of caution. Even if you could have some kale, that might be nice, but better to avoid that poisonous berry. So the bitter reaction is to spit something out, to close off the mouth, to get rid of that. And that actually helps our survival. Umani, people say is like kind of related to protein, but it's in fact not. So even though it is in cured meat, it's also really high in mushrooms. It's really high in tomatoes and things like that, which are not really a reliable signal. So it's not like, oh, umami means eat that because it's protein. Salt is actually much more reliable in terms of indicating protein. You do talk a lot about bitter and it's paradoxical that bitter, which can convey a signal that it could be detrimental to our health, is also the taste quality associated with some of the most healthful things like kale and collard greens. And yet I want to talk a little bit about something that totally delighted me. And that is the idea of a super taster. And I love beer and yet I hate IPAs. And I feel so left out of this conversation. And I felt just incredibly validated as possibly a super taster for not enjoying IPAs. I was wondering if you'd speak to what is a super taster and why might a super taster not like certain things, including IPAs? So that's great. I, I love that you just shared that. And just as a question, do you like endive, the, the vegetable? I don't think I like or dislike it. I, it's not coming across my radar as we talk. About how do you take your coffee? Every which way, but it was an acquired taste. I love the idea of an acquired taste. I remember Jackie Mason, the comedian, used to have a joke about potato chips versus, say, sushi, which is an acquired taste for many people, that you don't need to acquire a taste for potato chips. But for a certain coffees, I have acquired a taste. I like it dark. I like it in virtually any preparation, as long as it's dark and not acidic. So what about, do you take it with milk and sugar or cream and sugar or black? Yeah, both ways. Well, you're an interesting case. I don't want to necessarily diagnose you as an agricultural, although maybe you are. It could also be, this is me wearing my sort of diagnostician hat, but did you get a lot of ear infections when you were a child? I did not. 
Okay, yeah, we got that then. Because it's possible also people who've had less severe infections who may not really be secretators, but that could also change their perception of it. But my level of gustatory pleasure seems to exceed that of people I'm with most of the time. So that's a psychological super taster. That's a psychological one. But the physiology of being a taster, a non-taster, or super taster, actually, it's genetic. So it's whether or not you have versions of a particular gene you have that determines whether or not you're a super taster, what's called a medium taster, just a taster, or a non-taster. And this directly correlates with the number of the little tiny taste buds you have on your tongue that you can actually see if you stick your tongue out and look in the mirror, you see those little dots on your tongue? We actually have three different types of taste buds on our tongue, but the ones you directly see, those are genetically correlated with the way that you're represented in terms of the alleles for being a taster, super taster, or non-taster. If you're a super taster, you have actually way more of those little tiny taste buds than if you're a non-taster. And if you're just a taster, you're like Goldilocks, you know, you're right in the middle. So the thing is that if you are a super taster, Every taste is way more intense for you. So bitter is actually usually the way that this is tested. And if you were in high school and ever did a test where you had to put some PTC paper on your tongue, and if it was bitter to you or maybe you did or not, or you didn't really taste it, if that PTC paper was really bitter to you, then you're a super taster. If you couldn't taste it at all, you're a non-taster and everything in between you. The middle road is kind of hard to answer. That's just the way that I'm describing it. But in any case, being a super taster means bitter is extremely intense to you, but so are other things. So the creaminess of ice cream or the unctuousness of butter, the saltiness of various foods, the sweetness of various foods, the burn of a hot pepper and so forth. So everything is extremely intense in your mouth. Now, super tasters as a function of that, there are more chefs who are super tasters than not. Mm. But I do know some famous chefs who are actually non-tasters, like not just tasters, but actually non-tasters. And what I've heard them say is that actually helps them relate to a segment of their culinary audience that they might not have been able to relate to if they were super tasters. So super tasters, because they taste everything to such an extreme level, might not add as much flavorings to various foods as a chef who is a non-taster who then makes their food more flavorful as a function of that. But in any case, that's sort of the connection there. And what this means in terms of what you eat, so super tasters actually avoid the healthy bitter greens and in fact are at somewhat higher risk for certain kinds of cancers as a result because those very healthy bitter greens are very high in antioxidants and other macronutrients that are really sort of anti-cancer. So that's the negative. You have to like make yourself eat the Brussels sprouts and the endive and so on. Now a trick, the one taste actually that although they tasted as, as reasonably strong, they really like is salt. And that's because a trick here is if you want to eat something bitter, but you don't like the bitterness, if you sprinkle salt on it, that actually blocks some of the bitter receptors from being able to be activated and that taste less bitter, plus it's salty, which we like. And the more salt we consume and taste, the more salt we like and want. So the more salt you use, the more salt you use and so forth. And so this could be a problem for high blood pressure if that's your case. But if you're, depending on where you are on the spectrum and like how much you want to eat those Brussels sprouts or whatever healthy leafy greens, then you can decide how much salt to use. But that's a trick for the bitter foods. Now, that's the curse of the super taster. And super tasters, as another example, do not like IPA beers because IPA beers are typically very bitter. So that's another example. But interestingly enough, the carbonation of beers is also something that super tasters get more intensity from. So they often don't like carbonated drinks. Do you like your beer more the English style, like kind of flatter? Do you like really carbonated beers? a great question. I think I go both ways. So I may not be a super taster. I was really hoping I was. I do eat leafy greens every day. They're bitter. I don't like them. I actually dislike them, but I sprinkle it so heavily with sriracha is my little hack Perfect. because I do love hot sauce. Okay. Well, I'm going to say you're not a super taster. Oh, or hot sauce. Like if you were a super taster, you would not be able to douse your bitter greens with sriracha and be okay with it. So I'm saying, unfortunately, you're not a super taster, but you definitely have intense taste predilection. <laughs> if your beer range is like just the flatter stout, so like if you're a Guinness drinker or some of the stouts 
and porters, which are not very bitter and not carbonated, then if that's the only kind of beer you can drink, I'd say that you're more likely to be a super taster than not. And if you can't tolerate a lot of hot sauce, then you can't tolerate a lot of, you know, sort of things that are extreme, let's just put it that way. Or tolerate is the wrong word, but you shy away from those. So those are super tasters. Now, the problem with being a non-taster, so non-tasters don't have a problem with eating all those leafy greens that are really good for you. However, going back to alcohol again, alcohol, in addition to potentially being bitter, depending upon what it is, or carbonated, it is also stings. So like if you were to take a shot of whiskey, you know that burn? So that burn is actually something that a super taster finds like, oh, that's a little too much burn for me. So a super taster is not going to tend to be, you know, drinking whiskey neat <laughs> unless they've really acquired a taste for it, which can certainly happen because the psychological effects can be huge when it comes to our experience of food and the social environment and so on can really change our perception, you know, at least in certain moments. Maybe not when we're by ourselves in the kitchen, downing that whiskey shot may be hard, but if we're in the company of lots of friends and in Edinburgh, for instance, then having whiskey shot might be a lot more possible if you're a super taster. But the issue here comes from the fact that if you're a super taster, you've never had to water down your parents' drinks when you raided their, you know, liquor counter. <laughs> <laughs> And therefore, likelihood is that you may have been drinking straight alcohol since you were quite young and maybe drinking more alcohol and getting more alcohol into your system. And the issue when it comes to alcohol abuse is related to consumption, frequency and amount, you know, developing tolerance and so forth. So if you were able to consume a lot of alcohol and you started young and you basically continued, then you might get into a situation where you're over consuming and that could be a danger. So there's pluses and minus to being a super taster or a non-taster. Pick your poison. But unfortunately, it's your genetics that decided for you. And there's really nothing you can do to change it other than to learn to cope with it in various ways, both psychologically and also with condiments. And like I said, salt is really the best way for a super taster who's not going to be able to handle the sriracha to combat the uh, bitterness of uh, healthy foods. Well, let's talk for a minute about atmosphere and its impact on taste. If someone was trying to prepare a great meal and make it a multi-sensory experience, let's say they were trying to can create a beautiful, loving, warm family meal, or perhaps a romantic meal for their partner, what would be some of your tips regarding perhaps music choice, lighting, plates, other factors that people might not know to consider in order to really embellish the experience? Well, those are great questions and it's a little complicated. I mean, if we go back to plates again, since I've already has spoken about them. So round plates actually increase our perception of sweetness. So the shape of round is semantically and associatively correlated with sweet things in the environmental experiences we've had. So if you think about the things you've eaten in your life that are sweet, from fruits to cupcakes to ice cream scoops and so forth, they're primarily round. And if you think about the things that are, let's say, more salty, they tend to be more angular. So cuts of meat or cheese and so on, even different kinds of crackers and, and potato chips, they're more angular. So angular shapes, if you had like a triangular plate, you could augment, let's say, the saltiness of the savory part of your meal. And a round plate could augment the sweetness of the dessert part of your meal. Also red. In addition to it being something that's a stock cue, it actually, depending upon the color of your dessert, could make, like if you had, let's say, a flan that was basically sort of more white and it was on maybe not a super bright red plate, but on sort of a pinky red plate, that could also make the flan seem sweeter, especially if it was on a round sort of pinky red plate. So these aren't necessarily to make it more romantic, but these are aspects of the experience that can make it sort of more intense from a taste perspective. That being said, being in the emotion of love also makes things taste sweeter. So if you're in love with the person you're eating with, even plain water tastes sweeter than it does if you're just like kind of neutral with the person you're with. So the bottom line is that if you're serving a meal to someone who's in love with you, they're going to think it's great <laughs> pretty much anyway. But if you want to augment it from other sensory perspectives, Music is actually something that's really interesting. So having music in the background 
but that it isn't too loud. Again, kind of the Goldilocks version. So it's audible, but not too loud. And it's got a sort of a softer, slower tempo. You don't want to have extremely loud techno. In the High BPM. You want lower beats per minute. Yeah. You want lower beats per minute and you want something that's moderate intensity from the point of view of loudness. That makes people want to sit at the dinner table longer. And extrapolating out into restaurants, people who sit longer at the dinner table tend to order more and therefore tend to spend more. So restaurants that want to sort of keep their patrons dining and sitting longer, you know, that kind of background music and also more muted and darker lighting keeps people sitting longer. Whereas in, by contrast, fast food restaurants, they're bright. Also the colors of like red, orange, yellow, those are like bright, they're movement colors. There's typically a fair bit of noise in the background. It's not, maybe there's music, but it's also like there's kind of just general cacophony. Architecture is also something that tends to perpetuate sort of the bouncing of sound off walls. There's no like sound attenuation in uh, fast food restaurants. And the word fast, from the point of view of people dining in the restaurants, they want people out. So eat your meal and get off and then people who come in so that they can, you know, have more patrons and make more money. So it's all about these manipulations to get people to spend more and eat more in restaurants. But depending upon the kind of the restaurant, you can do things that will change the perception of the food. Also having a really nice plate setting, everything looking really attractive, like, you know, tablecloth and even just the plating of the food itself. All those things make the diner think that there's a higher quality to the food that they're consuming. So they then appreciate the food more and they appreciate the person who has presented the food to them more. So when things look really nice and when things are presented in an artful way, if they're presented in a way that's just very appealing visually, people will actually perceive that food as being better tasting, having higher quality from the ingredients it's made from, and also higher appreciation for the cook. And so those are some of the things from an ambience perspective that can change how we perceive the meal that we're consuming. I love that so much. And you also speak a little bit about how the French wouldn't dream of really, I mean, well, fast food does exist there. It's not how they roll. They tend to really savor their meals. And when I think about savoring in the literature of psychology, it's reflected at the very least, both in positive psychology in terms of increasing our happiness, as well as in mindfulness and both places, the idea of savoring and really tasting what we're eating rather than the cookie monster model of just shoving a whole bunch of stuff down our throat really fast and just consuming calories thinking that we're having a great old time. There were so many moments in this book, my mind was positively blown, but one of them was toward the beginning when you were describing that our personality may in some way determine the foods we like, that sweeter people tend to like sweets. And I found myself both delighted by that and curious about to know more as well as to know about the chicken, the egg thing in terms of do sweeter people like sweeter food or do people become sweeter as they consume sweeter food? So I, I found myself delighted by that, by the way. So the question is really unanswered at this point in time, but I think potentially there's more of a sociological influence than not. So I would say that it's rather likelier that people as a function of eating sweeter foods may become sweeter because the taste of sweet itself is like it's something that lights up the reward and the pleasure centers of the brain. You can't control it. It just happens. So instantly that you taste something sweet, you don't even have to swallow it, but the taste of sweet is like an instant little shot of happiness. Now, the problem, of course, in today's society is also that we like give ourselves too many instant shots of happiness in our mouth and that we're swallowing them. <laughs> and therefore, now we may end up feeling like, oh no, look how much I've eaten. Then we feel guilty and upset and th then it becomes this tortured thing and then we're not happy at all. But if you can just sort of cut the sort of equation down to the taste of something sweet, that pleasure that we experience, that little hit of happiness makes us momentarily nicer. And it's actually the case that if you have like a difficult meeting that you're going to, or you want people to get along and you're going to have to discuss some maybe contentious things and you bring sweet baked goods to the meeting, you are going to have better collaboration and better getting along with everyone, more agreement, buying in, whatever it is, than if there was nothing there to eat. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, 
is the fact that, you know, you hosted the meeting and you brought something and people like that. So people appreciate food in general, but eating a little bit of something sweet, as opposed to, let's say, bringing pizza will actually momentarily make people feel more agreeable in general about life and therefore, you know, kind of kinder, more benevolent overall. Now, like I said, these are fairly short lived effects. So in your short meeting, you know, this can definitely work. But in terms of the long term of lifespan and personality and so forth, what is really going on with this finding? So it was actually found in this study that people who other people evaluated as being quite sweet and kind also rated themselves as having a penchant for sweet tasting foods over other types of foods. Now, there's been another study that's also found that people who are more extroverted tend to also be people who like more spicy foods. So these ideas are kind of correlated with what we sort of like these associations we have, connotations with personalities and basic taste experiences. So you'd think that someone who was extroverted and so forth potentially would like more spicy foods because those concepts go together, just like being nicer and sweeter are concepts that go together. But the question of where does the concept come from? Does it come from the fact that inherently extroverted people were using lots of shiracha or that inherently very kind, benevolent people were putting lots of sugar in their tea? It's hard to sort of piece that apart, but there definitely seems to be relationships between tolerance and or desire for certain types of food and personality traits that can have an impact beyond, you know, that moment of consuming the food. So maybe what you said about the longer you eat sweets. So if you're someone that really likes sweets, then likelihood is you're eating sweets more often. Therefore, maybe you're feeling happier more often. And therefore, being nicer more often, people think that you're sweeter and nicer. So what would be your recommendation to somebody who wants to be sweet and really live in that lane and yet not face the health risks that are associated with long-term consumption of sweets? I mean, the simple-minded answer to that question is things like chewing gum that's sweet tasting. So especially if you're concerned about cavities, then you want to maybe have the sugar-free version of it. So non-nutritive sweeteners, by the way, are something that I'm generally really against and they can cause all kinds of problems metabolically, psychologically, they can make you eat more rather than less overall. But having gum that's sweetened without sugar doesn't cause this problem typically. Anyway, so if you want the taste of sweet and you don't want to swallow, chewing gum or little mints like Tic Tacs or small little candies which don't have many calories, but that give you the little sweet hits that you can then maybe feel a little bit happier. Now, the problem is that you don't want to sort of be doing it constantly because the more we consume something of the same taste and or flavor, we end up getting what's known as sensory specific satiety. Just imagine this, you've been eating sweet, 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 and then the next bite of sweet, you hardly taste the sweet anymore. And that's because you basically doled out to that sensory component. Now I give you something salty and you're like, oh yeah, it's salty. I'm really tasting the salty. Then after a while of eating the salty doesn't taste so much anymore. So then you maybe you flip back to the sweet. And this is a problem for people who are binge eaters tend to flip flop between those two tastes because after eating a whole bunch of one, then they don't really taste it anymore. And they want, you know, more of that intensity. So they go to sort of the opposite taste in a way. But the point is that popping a little sweet candy in your mouth that's lower in calorie or gum and so forth periodically could give you that sweet hit without many calories and without many negative consequences. As opposed you know, to eating cookies and donuts every time you feel like it. Absolutely. And you're speaking to the idea of habituation, so relevant in substance abuse and addiction that we need more as we consume more. And I'm finding myself going back to Bob Stahl, who taught me mindfulness-based meditation. And one of the things that he brought us was a raisin. And of course, a jelly bean could be substituted. But usually when I consume jelly beans, I eat them by the handful. I just love jelly beans. But when done mindfully, one jelly bean can really render a tremendous experience and can last a very long time. So to your idea of placebos in the form of Tic Tacs, or in this case, it could be like one jelly bean at a time or one M&M at a time over a long period of time, perhaps, and really savoring each one. Perhaps that might be a way of maximizing the effects of the sweetness without having to consume nearly as much. Yes, absolutely. And another thing that I like to do, and I do this to myself even personally, is not only I really like, let's say, doing the one M&M at a time, which is a little bit different than the gum example, because the gum also, if it's in your mouth for a while, you stop being able to taste it as well. So really like the one M&M at a time, but also 
giving yourself this little treat as a little reward. If I sit at my desk and write another paragraph, <laughs> I will then give myself an m M&M. So not only is it, you know, something that tastes sweet, but you've even coded it as reward. So like, woo, I look what I got. I've got to add to that because it's as if you were with me when I was doing my dissertation. I swear, <laughs> hand to God, when I was writing my dissertation, it was all about me and Skittles. I would get the reward of the Skittles at the end of a few pages. So it was like a rat doing a maze and Skittles totally worked on my reward center. Well, something else about Skittles and M&Ms, they all have the exact same flavor. So if you closed your eyes, I gave you a Skittle. I don't care if it's green, it's yellow, it's blue, whatever. Same thing with M&Ms. They all are the exact same taste slash flavor in your mouth. Wait, hold on. I, about M&Ms, I totally get that. And by the way, as a child, you mentioned this in the book, the brown M&Ms when I was a kid, I definitely thought they tasted better uh, because they reflected chocolate. But the Skittles, you're telling me, actually taste the same? I'm telling you they actually taste the same. Do you realize now I have to buy a whole bunch of Skittles and challenge my family tonight after dinner? Yeah. This is yeah. great. I love that. I want to pivot to your original source, and that is olfaction, otherwise known as smell. I tell you, you're one of these people that I wish I had like a USB cable and I could just download everything into my brain because it's so much fun and it's so relevant to our lives. One of the things with which you take issue is that the sense of smell is not really appreciated both by the masses as well as by insurance companies in the face of loss of the sense, 85% of one's life will be reimbursed. The value of one's life will be reimbursed by an insurance company if someone loses their vision. And yet losing one's olfaction or their sense of smell, which has a multitude of long-term effects, yields like, I forget, was it like 15%? It was, is it? Tiny one, no, no. one between one and five percent. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So let's talk about what happens. Like, why do you value this? I, I mean, I value the sense of smell. And by the way, I just a little tangent. I remember being in physio psych because I know you took these classes and, and dissecting a sheep's brain and seeing the olfactory bulbs close proximity to the limbic system, which is where memories and feelings are stored. And my favorite smell you mentioned in the book that you're not averse to the smell of skunks. And in fact, you like it. And I love the smell of East Coast basement because that's where I slept when I was at my grandpa's house, which was my favorite place in the entire world. And so if I smell East Coast basement, I'm happy as can be. But let's talk about the sense of smell, this underappreciated sense and why you value it so much and what can happen when we lose it. First, I want to just tell you that I've just done a study to look at how people value slash do not value their sense of smell compared to hearing and vision and in comparison to various commodities of either a physical or psychological quality. And I was actually thinking that because one of the main symptoms of COVID has been smell loss and some people have this really long-term residual loss of smell, it's been very devastating. And I've had many people tell me that they had COVID pretty badly, that the worst symptom was not being able to smell and they were totally panicked about it and so forth. So I thought maybe because also there's been so much popularity, so much writing about it and so forth, then things might be getting a little bit better for smell. But this was a study that I just did in this last, you know, six months. So I had two groups of people, undergraduates, and then people who I'm calling them the general population. They're older and they're professionals. Anyhow, so I had undergraduates and then I had older sort of more professional people in the study and several hundred of each group and then evaluating, you know, their sense of smell and hearing and vision in comparison to the set questions were set up with what would you rather lose? You know, your sense of smell or X, your vision or X, you know, whatever. And I'm not joking. When faced with the question of what would you rather lose, your sense of smell or your cell phone? Oh my God, no. Yes. <laughs> oh, please. Eight times as many people are said, I would rather lose my sense of smell than my cell phone than said their cell phone to their sense of smell and compared to vision or hearing. Like, like, it's just crazy. I mean, giving up your cell phone or your sense of smell, I keep my cell phone. This really stunned me. I mean, I was pretty blown away by it's finding that. The self-deception, I mean, the myopia associated with that idea that the sense of smell is in, of course, what they find later on, if they, God forbid, do lose their sense of smell is it's actually really bad on the other side. Right. 
And so, I mean, unfortunately, as we get older, all of us will eventually lose it to some extent. But just like with our other senses, there's a lot of individual variation. And some people can be well into their 80s and so forth now, but completely fine sense of smell and a beagle a lot younger. And just as also a little comment here, if you're in your 40s and you're suddenly having problems with identifying smells or detecting smells, this could actually be a very important signal that you have something else going on neurologically, either Parkinson's disease or Alzheimer's or potentially something else. And so you should be tested by a neurologist because it's a very early bellwether for these other more serious neurological conditions that if you have early intervention can really make a huge difference in terms of prognosis and quality of life and so on. So that's just, you know, one slight aside. So my first book is called The Scent of Desire, and it's really all about the psychology of the sense of smell. And I wrote that book in large part because it was my first experience working as an expert witness for someone who lost her sense of smell in a car accident. And like you mentioned, so the insurance company who cares? Here's a penny. Now go away. And her life had completely fallen off the rails in absolutely every respect. And she was like 28 years old, young professional, newly married, wanted to start a family. And before I get into all the things that went wrong with her, she was someone who prior to the accident never paid attention to her sense of smell, never gave it a second thought, never appreciated it. And when I met her, it was about a year or so after the accident. And she'd had several facial reconstructive surgeries. Like this was a major accident, but she was all put back together again. And there was nothing residual from the accident, except for the fact that she was totally anosmic. So she was totally smell blind and she no longer wanted to have children. She couldn't do her job anymore. She didn't feel close to her husband. Intimacy was an interest. She was having all kinds of problems. She, she, she basically lost her sex drive. Yeah, she lost her sex drive. She lost also her desire to be intimate with her husband because she could not smell him. That kind of closeness, that kind of bonding, that connection, that feeling, the other person in other ways. Body odor is very meaningful from uh, many facets, but also from the point of view of identity. Only you smell like you, so your partner knows you and your smell, and that's a significant part of your intimacy and your relationship and so forth. So anyhow, this poor person when I spoke to her, I never met her in face-to-face, but I had many conversations with her over the phone. She was in a different state as in geographical state. Sure, <laughs> in any case, she was absolutely devastated. Everything in her life had totally fallen apart. And she was also sinking into a very serious clinical depression. And this can also actually happen with loss of smell. And it can become more and more and more debilitating because of the neural interaction between where smell is processed. And as you mentioned, the, these areas of the limbic system where emotion, emotional memory and all kinds of emotional regulatory processes are maintained. And so basically what's known as the amygdala hippocampal complex in the brain, the amygdala is where emotion and emotional memories are processed. And the hippocampus is where associations are learned and various forms of memories take place. That is also referred to as the primary olfactory cortex. So the primary part of your brain that's processing smells is the same part of your brain that is processing memories, emotions, associations, and that whole interaction. And so when half of that equation is broken, it starts breaking the other side. So when you don't have input from your sense of smell, which is what's going on when someone loses their sense of smell, the other side of that And it's actually not just emotions and memories, but it's also things like ability to navigate in space, like following directions or knowing where things are. So people who do complex jobs where they have to, various kinds of spatial skills are required, but after they've become anosmic, they have all kinds of problems in that. I mean, it just affects everything. And people think about, oh, food. Because like I said at the beginning, flavor is about what you're smelling from your mouth. Well, that's the big thing. And doctors will say, well, are you eating properly? Okay, whatever. See you later. You're fine. But it is literally everything from sexual intimacy to figuring out how to get from one place to another to your emotional health to your sense of self, your identity of who you are. And everything to do with quality of life can fall apart. It can be really disturbing and unfortunately tends to be progressively debilitating. The comorbidity of anosmia and all of these other potential side effects of it it's so compelling and I had no idea. And the idea of the Fruit Loops guy saying, follow your nose. I mean, apparently out in our proprioception, our ability to kind of self-manage in the world relative to our bodies and where we are relates to our sense of smell as well. And I never would have considered that. Let's talk a little bit about what actually 
caused you, you don't know this, but when I first found out about your book, That's Disgusting, I had to interview you. It was just like, oh my gosh, this is going to be the greatest thing ever. And I, and I started geeking out to you and started reading it up on you. You've discussed both how it manifests in terms of taste, as well as how it can even be reflected in our moral compass. And just as a side note, if you're open to even throwing these around for whatever reason, there are three foods that totally and completely disgust me. They include canned tuna, chopped liver or liver of any kind and hard boiled eggs, particularly an egg salad, but anything relating to any of these three things, I am so grossed out. I actually have to like move myself away from it on average. Well, I mean, this is real speculation here, but one of the things I would potentially comment on, and we didn't really talk about this so much when we were talking about food earlier, but there's a texture issue here that maybe you're relating to. So like, you know, the, the canned tuna, if you had like the tuna salad with the mayonnaise or the chopped eggs with the mayonnaise or the chopped liver with the mayonnaise, like you'd get this sort of potentially the texture of that sort of mixture stuff. There's something that puts you off. There could be also smell features. I think it's more on the, the yeah, olfaction. Okay. And there could also be, you know, connotation features or psychological features like being forced to eat this when you were a kid under certain circumstances and then forming an aversion to them. And then like, no way, come hell or high water. I don't care about me a three-star Michelin restaurant. There's no way I'm having the liver. So there's potentially a confluence of factors, both psychological and sensory that go into, you know, having an aversion to different kinds of foods. And something that I talk about in Why You Eat, What You Eat also is children who have these extreme food aversions and it's the clinical term is avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, you know, also, also we'll talk about very finicky, very picky eaters and so forth. And parents get very upset about this and often can translate into the parents themselves having a little discord in their relationship and how we're going to deal with Johnny anymore. And it can have like all kinds of ripples that can be really bad overall for the whole happiness system. But the issue here is actually, you know, something that's quite interesting is really sensory that's going on with these kids. And there seems to be also various, you use this term for comorbidities, often with OCD with these kids or, or anxiety. But food becomes this really terrifying space and needing to control that space and only having it restricted to the very limited sensory experiences. So for instance, just white food. So I'll have like white bread, and I'll have some yogurt and I'll have some plain white crackers. Sort of food concepts can get very rigidly in place for a child and can be very hard to break out of because what adults who are dealing with children like this don't understand is that the food is not just, not just them being obstinate or I don't like it. The food actually has become terrifying. The food is actually something that is as menacing to the child as like someone pointing a gun at them. And that it's not that they just don't want to eat it because they're being a brat. They really feel as though this is really a terrifying experience to eat it. And the way to overcome it, sort of psychologically, doing things with like phobia treatments like desensitization and relaxation training and getting sort of slowly able to sort of, what would you feel okay about eating and sort of trying to build that world upwards? That is the main treatment that's done for kids like this so they can learn and also potentially through their own life experiences, learn to not be afraid of eating that food and then maybe it generalizes and so forth and they can grow out of it. But it really is something that evokes terror and disgust the way that we eaters <laughs> really can't comprehend. And that's why it tends to be something that, that engenders so much strife in families when this is going on with a child. But it can be you know, a really real phenomenon. But the thing about disgust, and, and just to bring it back to this, and so how my books all tie together. So the first book about smell, the second book about the emotional disgust, and the third book about food and eating is actually disgust is a taste-based emotion. And the face that you make, if I tell you or I ask you, you know, hold your neighbor's dirty dentures in the <laughs> and hand them to you right now, that same face that you make if you have to taste the liver right now. So exactly. the face of disgust that you make when you're eating something and actually the face that you make when you're eating something bitter. So that bitter taste face, which is the face of disgust, is the same face you make when you're emotionally disgusted. And so the concept is that our emotion of disgust, which is a very complex emotion, and I would argue that no other animal, creature, whatever you want to call her, 
people that the things that live with us on this planet, no other creature experiences disgust the way we do. So an animal may spit something out that tastes really bitter and is going to be poisonous to it, but they don't care about rolling in feces or whatever <laughs> we are psychologically repelled by. So the emotion of disgust and all of our emotions are there to keep us alive. And as a function of the fact, this what I think is that because humans are so long lived and we face peril from many different sources, not just fast sources like fires and tigers, but also very slow sources like disease and other forms of illness, which may you know be slow and creeping and things that are could be toxic to us in other ways. That disgust is a way for us to deal with these more creeping menaces, these slower menaces, and to help us to survive them by, you know, avoiding them. So a lot of it, though, is learned. And so one thing that other disgust researchers have said is it's the instinct that has to be learned. So we don't come out feeling disgusted. So little kids will love feces. They'll pick up dead animals. They, they don't care. They have to learn that these are bad. These are disgusting. And once it's learned, it's very ingrained in there. But in any case, it is scaffolded on this basic innate response to reject bitter taste. And that's what we share with other animals. But everything else that's more cognitively complex, that's a purely human phenomenon. Fascinating. A final question for you, Rachel. And this is related to the miracle question I ask most of my guests, and I'm going to ask it of you. Based upon your research, knowledge of smell, taste, etc. If you were able to impart upon all people on the planet one skill or one thing to be more aware of, what would it be? And what do you imagine would be the effect on the individual as well as society at large? So I'm, I'm very glad you asked that question because actually I have the recipe. <laughs> Whoa! This is basically about food and our relationship with food and having a happier and healthier relationship with food will make us happier and healthier people overall. And this is also, we have the luxury not to be starving, not to be really worried about when the next meal will be. So when we're eating something, we should never deprive ourselves. If I want a piece of chocolate, I'm going to have some chocolate. If I want some pizza, have some pizza, whatever that food is that you want. But ask yourself or make yourself ever so slightly mindful of the experience while you're consuming whatever it is. And ask yourself with each bite, how much pleasure am I getting from this? Now, the first bite, pleasure, wow, off the charts, amazing. Second bite, third bite, probably also pretty high. But when that pendulum starts to swing down towards neutral, mm -hmm. then you say, I'm not physically hungry. I am not really getting the taste pleasure from this any longer. This is when I can stop. And then you don't have to eat the whole thing. And then you can feel you're in control of your relationship with food. You can eat anything that you want and you can get the pleasure from it. And it also translates into becoming more thoughtful, more mindful in general in other areas of your life. It's just slowing down for a second to ask yourself in that balance of pleasure to, to sort of, you know, maybe the negative of the overconsumption, where am I in this balance? And when the pleasure sinks down and you're no longer getting that, that hit from it, that's when you say, no need to have that any longer. I am sated. I love that idea. And the word in Spanish is estoy satisfecho, which means I'm satisfied. That's used for meaning that I'm, my hunger has been quelled. And I'm also thinking about in Okinawa, the concept of harahachibu, which means stomach at 80% full. And just integrating that mindfulness that we were talking about and savoring, what a great wish. And I would imagine that if we were able to rock that most primal of skills, to be more aware of our regulation about how much we were taking in, that that would have broad implications to other areas of our lives, that it would really inform our need for retail therapy, perhaps our need for God knows what dopaminergic quest. So I love that idea. I know exactly what you're talking about with this sort of, you know, leave the table wanting more and all that. I'm not even going there. I'm saying you can leave the table not wanting anything more, but what you've done is you've satisfied your pleasure. And you're aware because, you know, mm. eating is the one pleasure that every human shares it. And we need to do every single day in order to stay alive. That's right. And 
we need to be able to take that pleasure with us and not have this contorted, difficult relationship with what we're eating. And we need to be aware that there's pleasure involved in eating and to sort of get the most of that pleasure, the most satisfaction from what we eat. And then also understanding that when that pleasure isn't there anymore, that's when I can put the fork. What a great way to be aware of our dashboard, so to speak. <laughs> uh, I love it. Well, Rachel, I'm so grateful for taking time to speak with me and share your wisdom with my listeners. I'm so grateful to you for your contributions to the field. Such an important place you have filled and you appear to be just not even coming close to slowing down. So I just can't wait to see what you produce next. I hope one day to have a meal with you and to discuss that meal while we're having it in real time. And I just want to thank you so much for everything that you've done. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I really love this conversation. So it's been a feast. (laughs) (laughs) Right on. This is Dr. Adam Dorsey thanking you for listening to Super Psyched. If you know anyone who might like it or who might benefit from listening, share it. And if you like the episode, please hit subscribe 